Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast, presented by Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management profession. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. I just want to give a brief plug to a couple of the opportunities that we have right now. Um, we have a director out in San Francisco. When I say opportunities, I'm talking about job opportunities. We have a director um, out in San Francisco. We have a direct role in Stamford, Connecticut, a manager role down in Dover, Delaware. So if you are interested in any of those, please give me a call. Send me an email. You can always go to our website. Check that information out online. So with that done, today we welcome Brian Connors to the High Reliability Podcast. Brian is the Managing Principal Consultant at Environmental Health and Engineering. They are located not far from me, just to the north of me. They are located in Newton, Massachusetts. Environmental Health and Engineering, or EHNE as they are also known, offers expertise in engineering, environmental and health, and safety consulting. EHNE works with hospitals, laboratories, universities, and industrial facilities across the United States. Brian has been with EHNE for more than 15 years. Prior to that, he spent four years as a safety officer, industrial hygienist at Boston's Children's Hospital. As a former client of EHNE, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, when I worked in healthcare. I just took a sip of water. I can say that EH&E, from the client perspective, always did a great job. We were working a um, greenfield construction project, and it was one of those great projects that you don't always have the opportunity to work on because it was pristine ground. We were building a huge facility, <clears throat> but we would often run into some issues relative to water, uh, and we called EH&E, and they were always prompt. So just a plug for EH&E, I've got Brian on the podcast, but relative to their services, they always did a great job for us. That's how I officially came, or not officially, but originally came to know EH&E. Brian has his BS from the University of Rhode Island in environmental science and management, and he has his MS in industrial hygiene from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Brian uh, spoke at the ASHI Annual Conference back in August. I attended his presentation, uh, and it was really informative. It was really timely. I enjoyed it. He was looking at COVID tracing in hospitals. Um, he offered some case studies. And so I know Brian, and I asked him to appear on High Reliability to talk about those real-world examples that he offered at the uh, ASHI Conference, and Brian said he would. So, Brian, thank you and welcome. Well, thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. I mean, I'm actually excited to uh, to do this podcast. It's something new and unique for me, so I'm I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. These are uh, these are fun to do. I enjoy them, and uh, you know, your background is an interesting one. As I said, we concentrate on healthcare facilities management. But Brian, you know, in addition to his experience at Boston Children's, he's also in the field of sciences. So, Brian, just before we get into your COVID case studies, tell me or tell us. How did you decide on your career? Was it something that you always wanted to do or did you fall into it? Talk about that because it's a little unique. How, how did you come to it? Sure. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Honestly, you know, it, it wasn't. I mean, it's it's what I've done now going on 22 years. But if, if you look back at maybe like college, I didn't even really know this career existed. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, 
I, you know, I went to college focused on, you know, the outdoor environment, environmental issues. And I went to work for a great company, EH&E, that's focused on the indoor or the built environment. And I, I really just enjoyed it. I really liked the problem solving nature of it. And so, no, I mean, I've done it for a long time now, but I, but I, um, was originally thinking outdoor environmental, and and I found that the built environment in our buildings, frankly, are are, are just as interesting, if not more so. And, and there's lots of lots of lots of value that um, folks like uh, like uh, industrial hygienists and facility directors can apply to the built environment. So that's interesting. So yeah, and you know, it's funny that you say you kind of fell into it because you know, as you know. You've worked in hospitals, you've worked with facility directors, you know that that's common. You know, a lot of facility directors fall into it. I mean, you never really hear much about facility directors or the facility director role in college. It's something we're trying to increase to get people into it. But so you said you, you didn't think about it. when did when did you learn about the indoor environment and, and how did that transition occur? Sure. You know, I did. I, I started working in, in hospitals right out of college in, in an environmental health and safety capacity, right? So I think I, you know, I started my career thinking mostly about environmental health and safety compliance. And, you know, I, I got to work for this company, uh, EH&E, that gets involved in lots of sort of interesting forensic um, building-related studies. And so I evolved from maybe the more kind of compliance orientation to some of this forensics. So I, I still do a lot of compliance consulting in the joint commission space as well. And, and so does EH&E. So we're kind of able to bring a little bit of the, both the compliance perspective, but also a kind of forensic um, uh, building science perspective on, on how buildings work and how they can be optimized to, to really provide safe patient care. So what is something that you do or the science that you use that a person who who works in healthcare facilities but doesn't have your industrial hygiene background may not be aware of? You know, I, th- I think one of the maybe the things that folks aren't aware of or maybe misconceptions is the whole sampling thing, right? Is, you know, we, we do as industrial hygienists, exposure scientists collect samples, but it's not the main thing we do. It's an important thing we do. But it's so much of it is um, our observations, it's professional assessment of the issue we're looking at. You know, it's applying what we call the source pathway receptor model. And so, you know, can that sample be a reasonable source within the source pathway receptor model? You know, there are a lot of other companies out there that just conduct sampling. And that's that's not really what we do, right? I think the most important thing I'll get across is if folks are thinking of doing some of this work is really don't sample unless you know why. Right, you have to know hmm. what what the objective is you're trying to do, right? And you know, and sampling is quite important, but but honestly, it's not always as important as really just understanding the big pictures. What's going on in this space? What is the sample of this air or surface or water mean relative to an employee or a patient within the space? So I think maybe the biggest piece of it is just the the relative value of sampling versus the relative value of sampling really looking at the, you know, sometimes complex dynamics that can go on in buildings, especially, frankly, hospital buildings. So, and, you know, I was going to ask you, what does an industrial hygienist do? And and I'd like you to answer that, but does the industrial, you know, you talked about going that extra step. It's not just sampling. Does the industrial hygienist bring that advanced perspective into the sampling projects? What do you do? What do, what do industrial hygienists do? Sure. First, we, we don't clean teeth, even though hygienist is in there. <laughs> I, it, 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 it took my wife three or four years to, uh, to recognize that when we first started dating, but we don't clean teeth. You know, ultimately, we're trying to 
um, trying to prevent disease in, you know, worker or patient populations that are indoors. And we're, we're doing that by, you know, assessing exposure, assessing potential exposure, and then preventing ex- exposure. So we're thinking at what possible exposure routes are there, what the contaminant is, whether it be biological, which a lot of my work tends to be more on the biological contaminants in the healthcare space. I spent my entire career as a industrial hygienist in hospitals, which is actually reasonably unique. Um, and then certainly chemicals in, in, in other in other environments. So we're thinking about the exposure and how do we prevent it? That's in, in essence what it is and not cleaning teeth. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, I had my first, uh, uh, probably a lot of you who are listening probably in the same boat. I had my first teeth cleaning two weeks ago. It had been almost two years because of COVID. Um, you know, it, that just got pushed by, I tried to make it, tried to make my appointment back in the summer. They couldn't see me. But anyways, that's really a tangent from what, but you brought up the, teeth and the and the, the, the hygienist but if you haven't made your teeth cleaning appointment make it because i'm sure a lot of people uh have gone a while don't call the exactly. H&E, I guess right brian yeah exactly we, we actually <laughs> did some really interesting covid work in, in dental settings as well right so yeah no 100 get your get your teeth cleaned <laughs> uh, you know that's interesting so relative to to the dental setting you must have been called in pretty quickly on the dentist side once things opened back up yeah, the interesting thing in dental, right, is you actually can't wear a mask during the provision of care, right? So in the healthcare setting, you, you could you could mask um, patients, right? But in mm-hmm. in, den- yeah. in dentistry, yeah. right, you're going to go in. The, you're you know you're working within the mouth, and so yep. yeah, there's some unique challenges there from from a COVID perspective. We did we did a, we did a handful of projects with, within that space, to, you know, to ensure safe provision of care, and, and we're in a much different spot now than we were in the beginning of the pandemic. But there was a lot of a lot of panic calls. Um, you know, early summer uh, 2020, when the dental um, clinics and, and big dental practices were, were opening back up. Interesting one for sure. Yeah, no, it's funny you say that because um, now that I remember my the, the um, hygienist who was cleaning my teeth, she's like, I don't care. She's like, I work with people all the time who don't have masks on. And I think, I guess if you're working in that environment or in the hospital environment, you, you kind of have to have that attitude because you can't, you can't hide from the patients. They're there. Right. Exactly. Um. Are do you do you or are you happy with your career? Are you happy with your career choice? I should say, you know, you didn't expect to be in this position, but now you are. You're with a great firm. Are you pleased with the with the path you've taken? Yeah, I'm very happy. I enjoy the work. You know, I'm I I um I like problem solving, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm easily bored. <laughs> and I will say this: <laughs> I, I get to get involved in some very interesting projects, and I really enjoy I enjoy working with people too. Like I we we have a, we're a large you know a good sized company, 110 or so professionals, and you know I have good technical skills. But one of the things I really enjoy actually is talking to clients, right? And and many times I'm actually one of the interpreters talking through maybe one of our real experts in a certain area, HVAC systems or waterborne pathogens to the client. So I often play that interpreter role as well. I'd imagine that skill set that you just described, the interpreter, is very important. I mean, I'm going to make a, I'm going to, you know, make a, a, a generalization here, but I, you know, a lot of scientists or many scientists, maybe they're not comfortable with that soft skill component that you bring to the table. Is is that true? And it, do, it does seem to be true. Yeah. I, I have a lot of, um, 
you know, I have a lot of long-term clients and I, I think EHE does as well. And, and a lot of clients that I've worked with very closely for, for many, many years now, frankly, hospitals all around the country. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's one of the reasons that they keep coming back to EHE and, and, and I keep getting involved with them is, is sometimes these are very complex issues. They involve exposures and they involve infections and, you know, potentially those infections can have pretty poor outcomes. Right. And, right. you know, they're complex issues and, and, um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, our ability, and I, I think the ability I've helped develop to help put in context uh, what these issues might be, right? Which things are urgent, which things can happen later, and, and, and how and what they actually mean in, in more common, you know, in, in more common phraseology and in, in, in everyday language. I, I think that actually helps, and clients seem to appreciate that quite a bit. Yeah, and that's you know, you've <clears throat> you've just described yet another commonality in the healthcare facilities world because there are some directors who aren't comfortable and frankly you know for the last 5 years you might not have needed to be as comfortable with the soft skill component of the role but now it's critically important and you've been at those project meetings before when you know you have a disparate audience in front of you and you have to make sure that the words you're using and the lingo you're using is understandable i mean we can all get caught up in the unique lingo of our right. of our expertise <clears throat> Agree completely. Absolutely. So you, as I said in the um, in the open, and you just alluded to it, you spent four years. You were the safety officer and the industrial hygienist at Boston Children's Hospital, a great organization, great hospital. And you transitioned over to EH&E. How did that occur, Brian? Oh, sure. You know, first of all, I love Boston Children's. One of one of my favorite clients. Um, I still work with them all the time. And I, you know, I I think ultimately, I I really enjoyed the problem solving uh, piece of it. And there's lots of problems, but I think consultants get to see unique problems. And so, you know, I, I went back from the um, more um, compliance uh, orientated work to a, a bit more of a sort of problem solving or forensic work. Uh, I still do a lot of that work for Boston Children's. I've I actually developed a little bit of a unique niche is where I've done this similar type of work for a handful of of um, of children's hospitals all around the country, um, a lot large name children's hospitals. I will say it, it's uh, very appreciative of the opportunities that Boston Children's gave me because I think knowing that I had work in there gives you a lot of credibility in terms of these yeah. other organizations. So it was nice. But it was mostly just I think I really I enjoyed the problem solving nature of consulting. Were you at, at Children's, were you a traditional safety officer? And when I say traditional, I guess in the in what we know a safety officer to be? Yes, yeah, very very traditional. Yeah, um, I did a little bit, maybe more of some of the infection control stuff. I did some. This was when I was there. Was right after nine eleven, so I'd done a, a decent <laughs> amount of emergency management stuff at the time. But but yeah, very traditional safety officer. You almost have. <clears throat> you've got the best of both worlds, huh? From an experience perspective. Yeah, I count myself lucky. I, I yeah. really do. I count myself lucky. And uh, I still work. Uh, I had done some work at Brigham and Women's as well. And I, I still work for these organizations, um, you know, all, all the time. And, it, and it, it helps, you know, it really does help to understand it from the client, from the owner's perspective, right? Because I think too many consultants, I think, fall into the trap of of telling you what to do and not knowing how to do it, <laughs> right? And so like, I do, I, I count myself lucky that to bet on both sides. Doesn't mean I always know the answer, right? But I, but I get a good sense about what's what's reasonable and possible. right, right. Well, and you know, it's kind of like when we find a facility director who's got that clinical background, and there aren't many of them. When I say clinical background, there are some directors who have their nursing degrees. And I think it's very similar. I mean, you know, when you're sitting around that project table to, to have that clinical background in the facilities world, um, 
is helpful too. And that's kind of what you have relative to your dual perspective. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely critical, right? We we really need to think about this from the the caregiver and the patient perspective. And any way you can you can get that perspective is, is so important. Yep. Yep. So let's um transition a little bit, Brian, into COVID. I mean, since March 2020, we've kind of been in this spot. Um, but from a big picture perspective, from your experiences, from EHE's experiences, how do you assess the pandemic now. And, and what I mean by that, you know, this, the state or the ability of hospitals and institutions to manage the virus from an environmental health and safety perspective, where are we? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, first of all, right, I think we all know this COVID was absolutely devastating it was devastating because it was novel, right? Mm. It was a, a, novel, a novel virus. You know, I mean, ultimately it looks as though we're going to have an endemic level of COVID, right? Some, low level of COVID that, that exists. And hospital systems have, and they already are, uh, as well as other employers, adjusting to that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, vaccinations are key to ensure that these don't remain novel to our immune system, right? And the variants are a big question as well. But, you know, we're seeing hospital organizations really showing their resiliency here. Um, you know, in, in New England, where I, where I uh, work and live, um, you know, the hospitals um, uh, have have pretty low admissions rates for COVID right now. There's some uptick, of course, with the, with the variants. Uh, and, we, you know, we are seeing some upticks. We do work all around the country and in various areas of, of the country. But ultimately, I think hospitals, they're in a very different situation than, than they were in those, uh, you know, the first uh, uh, two peaks of COVID, right? It's yeah. certainly an issue. It's one we'll have to deal with for a while. It looks like it'll probably become endemic, but I think we're in a different spot. I, I think the light is at the end of the tunnel. Now, maybe the tunnel's a little bit longer than we thought with the new <laughs> variants here, but I, I think that we'll, we'll get there and, and healthcare organizations have been leading the way and, and have really shown their flexibility. So if you think back to those early days, March, 2020, um, when you were Getting calls um, from organizations. What was that like? And that's not a scientific question I'm asking, but like, what was the level? What was the level of understanding? Was it kind of just chaotic? What did? What were you hearing from hospitals and systems across the country very early on, before the body of knowledge really didn't exist? Because as you know, it was novel. You know, it was all new. What was that like? Thinking back to those days for you guys. Yeah, it was. It's a very, a very strange time. We, you know, I, we started doing some COVID preparation work as early as January, mid to late January hmm. of that year, for a couple of our hospital clients. When this was a, when this was a virus that was not yet in the U.S. that we knew of, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we did work up until. Uh, we still do work on it, but we did, we did, we did work. This product that wasn't my case studies. We actually, uh, we were working on up until this mid March when really the world changed, right? And so, <laughs> in the beginning of the project, it seemed as though it was almost like an exercise. So mm. it went. It was interesting. It went from I did I did some emergency management work post nine eleven when I was doing safety officer work, and we did a lot of exercises. And so I would say, in the January time, it very much felt like an exercise. Maybe academic. Of course, it was prevention, but it didn't. It didn't seem that way yet. But yeah. it very much transitioned by late February to early March from an exercise to the real thing. It was an interesting perspective, right? And I think our clients felt the same way. Like you, you know, you want to be ready for all these things. But in the beginning, it's a bit hypothetical, and it felt that way in the you know the early winter of, of 2020. But it very quickly went from an exercise to to the real thing. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to 
like those first two weeks of of August, those first two weeks of March, because I think March thirteenth is at least for, you know for my kids, that's when school was canceled, and that that's in the middle usually of what's traditionally like March Madness for for college basketball, and everything got canceled, and it, it almost seemed like from the end of February, February twenty eighth to March thirteenth, you went from zero to a hundred just in everyday life, and it was like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you sure did. The, the, yeah, I, I was uh, away from Boston, actually, when the world changed. Uh, we'd been doing an annual guy's ski trip, and I, and I oh, flew nice. to Jackson Hole, I flew to Jackson Hole, <laughs> Wyoming on, on March 13th. Oh, wow. the, world, the world changed when I was in Jackson Hole. We were planning yeah. to sail the 17th, and we flew back on the 16th, and the world really changed when I was away. It was, um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it, it probably it probably changed quite a bit while you were in the air from Boston to, <laughs> to Jackson. Yeah, that was oh, looking back, certainly a, a, a crazy time. So, you know, from from your perspective, you know, comparing those early days to now, but were there what are some of the you know biggest changes to have taken place to industrial hygiene thought and practice from very early on to now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple, right, from a sort of public health perspective. I mean, I think the the whole cleaning or overcleaning and the the you know the the um, the chances of transmission of the virus on um, inanimate surfaces, right? In the beginning, I think very people were very much worried about um, contacting something, right, on a surface and, and mm-hmm. overcleaning, and that's that's changed quite a bit, right? I think we we, we ventilation in, in, uh, is so key to prevention here but I think early in the pandemic the the focus was a lot of focus was on cleaning and that that, that certainly changed and, and changed within that that first six months or so and I think too you know we saw um, we certainly saw a transition in the thinking and knowledge about the way this virus is is transmitted right you know CDC ch- changed their official thinking from being purely, uh, a droplet um, transmission to also the small aerosol transmissions. And that's something that was reasonably known, at least expected by industrial hygienists and public health folks, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean it makes up all, uh, most or, or all of those, but it, it it certainly is a transmission route, especially in areas with really low ventilation routes. So I think those are the two big changes I think I saw is, is moving appropriately away from, now we certainly want to clean our surfaces, right? <laughs> but from overcleaning, so much focused on the overcleaning uh, to understanding that the real transmission routes here. You know, those, um, the, uh, the barriers that exist, you know, when you go to stop and shop, when you go to the grocery store, the, the plexiglass barriers that exist, um, yes. between, what's, what's your thought? <laughs> so we're off topic, but are the, do those fall into the same areas over cleaning or do they work? You know, that's an interesting question. Do they work? I mean, they, they, they can, there are times they can do more harm than good. Right. But they, you know, they can be a barrier. I, th- I think in, you know, in areas where you have an employee, like maybe say a waiting room, um, you know, potentially some, there's some value there. It's, they, they are required still in this OSHA emergency temporary standard. So the, you know, at least there's some thinking that, that they, that they help. Ultimately, they probably don't help that much. Right. Especially mm-hmm. if we're masked. Um, uh, and you want to be very cautious with placement. So you're not putting it in the wrong location to prevent the ventilation system. But huh. assuming you, you get that right, certainly no, no harm, no foul, right? And they may provide some some marginal benefit. 
is that where they would do more harm? You alluded to more harm than good. Is that where it would do more harm harm than good, Brian? If it was located within a ventilation path or blocking a ventilation yeah, path? Yeah, if you're if you're just if you're disrupting air airflow, right? If you're mm-hmm. disrupting some sort of design of airflow, or you're leaving almost some like dead spots of ventilation, they, they certainly could be problematic in some areas. Um, you know, especially if there's say lower ventilation rates in in, a, in an area, so they they could be problematic within those settings. And honestly, there's not a lot of real evidence based on um, for or against this issue, right? Mm. I, I think that the you know ultimately it, it it's meant to be a barrier to you know to kind of drop a splatter, um, and you know be, before masking, before universal masking, or now some areas are not universal masked, right? You, you could, could certainly capture some splatter, um, so. That's that's it's interesting. It's good that there are people who like to people like yourself who who enjoy that forensic component of it. It, it always <laughs> reminds me a little bit of um, the initial CSI show. I don't know how many CSIs there are now. Maybe there aren't any. But going back to the original with Grissom and his group, um, I used to love that show. And granted, it's TV; it's not real life. But you know that type. It, it's good that that exists and that there are people who can do that and are smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> For all of us. I mean, I- I, I love the analogy. That, that's the part of the work I really do enjoy, right, is, is, is most problems are solvable. You just you got to make sure you're, th- you're thinking about the, re- the right dynamics. You know, uh, most problems are solvable. This is it, just in general. And I know um, when I worked and, and I know I still see it, like clients always want problems solved quickly, right? You've always got to be faster. But in reality, Brian, and I know every situation is different, but from a time, like how long does it take to figure things out? Do you know what I mean? To, to really, like clients want the answer yesterday. They always right. want it faster. You're never fast enough. But in reality, what is, a, what is a realistic length of time to solve problems and give clients information that they can use and trust? And that's kind of a big, broad question. But, you know, Talk about timeliness, if you don't mind, not even related to COVID, but just kind of in general when you begin client engagements. How long does this take to do and to do well forensically? Yeah, it's a good question, right? And it does does vary quite a bit. And I think that's probably part of managing client expectations. And, you know, I I think it's how well do we understand what's going on? Both (laughs) us and the client, right? And, you, you know, you mentioned COVID and, you know, in the beginning, you know, we we had a good idea, and I'll talk about some of those later on about what would be going on from an airflow perspective, right? Aerosols within a, a uh, within a hospital are well studied, well understood, right? But we didn't know much about the cleaning in, 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 in inanimate surfaces, right? So, questions related to things that were well understood, you know, you can get a reasonable timeline, but things that might not be known, mm-hmm. and the same is true for even non-novel things, right? We do a fair amount of infection investigations and. You know, so, and we're talking about COVID today, but we do a lot of, of mold and also waterborne pathogens. And, hmm. you know, often the, the time that we're trying to investigate was months ago, even sometimes years ago, right? But but more often weeks or months ago. And it's, you know, maybe you don't find something when you're first going into the organization, but there it might not be a source that's there right now. Like it may be an episodic source or some kind hmm. of episodic issue. So it's it, it can take a while to uh, understand what's going on, right? And but you you know we're often bringing expertise that we've seen this or something like this before, and that yep. is a real value of EHE and companies like us. Is you know um, 
you know, other than some of the initial, even with COVID, many of these things work on some really basic principles. And in most, uh, in many, most, and sometimes nearly all cases, we've done something like that before, right? Hmm. And and I, I think that's that's what's important. But but certainly, it can take a while to, to figure these things out, especially if it's an episodic issue. Do you remember the show House? I do. Yes, I do. Do you remember how? <laughs> so like when you were talking about that episodic or when you're kind of talking about how you go about the process, I was picturing House. Do you remember, again, it's a TV show and I don't watch a lot of TV, but House and CSI. And that tells you when I watch TV because we're going back, what, 15 years or so. Um, but I'm, I'm just envisioning, remember in the office, he would lay everything out and you'd have arrows all over the place and things connecting. It would be like a detective's room. Does that ever happen on whiteboards in EH&E where you guys are around a table spitboarding things and, and putting it up and making connections or is that just a TV? Is that just a TV demonstration? Well, you know, it, it does, right? I think we bring two really unique offerings under one roof. We, we bring the engineering expertise and the industrial hygiene. Hmm. And we need both of those. We need both of those components. And so, you know, we have a handful of principal engineers who are working very closely with us on study design. And so, you know, it, it's maybe not as dry, uh, um, dramatic as a TV <laughs> yeah. uh, provision, but no, it's very common for us to be looking at mechanical drawings and mm-hmm. looking at floor plans and looking at pressurization readings and really just thinking through, okay, okay, this thing happened. How could it happen? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we, we often, we're, we're typically doing that on the sort of what we call the study, study design phase when we're trying to figure out, um, you know how are we going to how are we going to test this hypothesis, right? Hmm. But I mean, frankly, the, the pace of today's world, the study design phase phase might be on the drive for the hospital during an emergency, <laughs> right? So it's right. you know it, it's 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 a fast world that we live in. Often we're doing it up front, and we're working with you know both our um, engineers uh, as well as our industrial hygienist, exposure scientists, right? And we're we're trying to test a hypothesis, right? But you know, in the world, we were we respond to emergencies sometimes too, and we're doing that with the client as well so yeah yeah yep yep um looking at uh again back to kind of covid is there a is there a common hvac slash covid19 talking point that's misunderstood by the general public whether it's inside or outside of healthcare? You know, I think I think that what we could actually use a lot of is is that phrase I used earlier is the interpreter Hmm. Right is I, I think that there's misconceptions a lot in the in the public domain, including in hospitals about about HVAC systems. There was this big focus from the Joint Commission about um, relative pressurization of spaces, and I think that I do think that clinical staffs now understand that much better than they did ten years ago. But I do think that you know you'll sometimes hear, well, it's 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 a vent system or the HVAC system. I think that there's, it's really important, I think, for clinical folks as well as the public uh, and engineers to really talk and describe those issues. That's often the role that I help playing. But I think just in general, there's maybe misunderstanding, right, about, um, about ventilation. Sometimes folks think that they can maybe feel or uh, or taste ventilation, right? And you can't, right? Maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe that maybe you're closer to a diffuser, right? That you can feel or hear it. And that's not all. It's not. It's not based upon your perception, right? Depending on the system design, right? yeah. There's actual measurements that are important. Well, you know, it's 
it's it's you know you were talking about the speed at which society moves and the speed at which everything is mo- moves these days almost argues against or or doesn't allow for that interpreter to be able to interpret and disseminate information because you know, it just happens so quickly these days and once that info is out there to counter that for that interpreter to counter it it can be very difficult to change narratives over time it can absolutely yeah no i i agree I, i'll say the the the, the, the one thing that my clients really enjoy hearing when they call is, yeah, we, we've seen that recently, right? Yeah. Is that we, yeah. we're not starting from ground zero. I mean, honestly, there are times you're starting a bit more at ground zero here. And COVID was an example of that. But there's been several calls we've gotten from clients in this space here where literally had just done something similar four to six months ago. And, and clients really do enjoy that. That's, that's where it's easiest to be the interpreter is when you, yeah. can, you can get that up front. But it, it can be difficult in the pace of today's world, 100%, especially hospitals. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So... I mentioned that presentation you did at the ASHI Annual in Nashville uh, back in August. Your your presentation was called was called "Successful Model for Infection Pathway Assessment: Pandemic and Future Uses." So, in your session um, for the audience, you presented two COVID pandemic case studies, and they touched on two different areas. Your first case study looked at preventing the spread of the virus, and the second looked at investigating um, an outbreak. Um, with that said, the first case study, and that's where I would just want to ask first, the first case study involved the hospital's rapid preparation for COVID-19 patients and how a process known as tracer gas testing was used to verify that HVA systems were properly configured to, pre- to prevent the transmission of the virus. So, before we talk about the particulars of what you did, from a process perspective, Brian, how many EH&E team members take part in a study like this? How long does it take? And we talked a little about this, but how long did it take? Does it take? And how long do results take? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So, you know, in the field doing measurements, we had about four people each day. And then the study design was very heavily developed by one of our principal engineers and, and myself. Hmm. Uh, this was, again, it, 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 the project here started mid to late January 2020, and it, it felt very much like an exercise. So we were actually assessing several um, air handlers and mechanical systems throughout a very large hospital, frankly. Mm-hmm. And it started out at a pretty even pace, right? Because it was <laughs> an exercise doing the areas they thought might most likely have COVID patients if they got a surge. And then we, we, we finished up in early March when they knew the surge was coming, they had already modeled it. And so it, it went from a, you know, it went from a, um, uh, it went from a, a pretty measured pace to a pretty urgent pace quite, quite quickly. <laughs> and the nice thing about this, so we, we're do, we were doing both what we call tracer gas and tracer particles. Um, and the nice thing about it is, is that the, um, you know, the measurements are real time. So we were able to give give the client some perspective while we were still in the field. They, they made some field adjustments and we showed some of that in the presentation, right? And we were able to come back and, and, and verify and validate the corrections that, that they made were, were effective. So nice thing is with both tracer particle, tracer gas, 
uh, testing is that you're getting real real time uh, data. Now we have to analyze that data, but we were able to give the client um, real time information while we were on site. They made some adjustments on the areas that they were a little bit worried about, and we were able to validate that. It did. It, it, I think we we were, we started in mid late January, and we were done in early March. And we we it was a very urgent pace at the end to, to get through this hospital systems, but it, it all worked out very well. So what is tracer gas testing and what is tracer particle testing? Sure. Yes. I mean, so same, you know, same general concept for both, but basically you're, you're tracing the airflow pattern, right? You're, you're releasing some kind of a tracer, which is not hazardous, of course, right? It's benign, <laughs> right? We don't want to release, uh, we don't want to release something <laughs> hazardous. It's yeah. easily detected. And also it mimics the aerosol of concern. It's not found within the environment. So essentially, you're you're tracing the airflow pathway, right? How did how could something get from from point A to point B? And point A and point B might not be a direct line, right? So it's you're releasing a a non hazardous um, either particle or gas, easily detected, mimics that aerosol, and we're we're really tracing it to figure out how it gets from point A to point B or from point A to B, C, D, and F. Uh, so that's that's the, the basics here. When you say <clears throat> when you say it mimics the aerosol, in this case, was it a gas and or particle that mimicked the COVID aerosol? Yes. Yep. Okay. That's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Was 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 mimic um mimic the the COVID aerosol? How do you determine that it mimics it? it? Might be a little too much inside science, but for for like a layperson, how do you determine the thing, the benign gas that can mimic the actual pathogen? Yeah. So, you know, typically you want to use a particle when it's a particle phase like this. So we use particles and gases. And that's just based upon the size of the of mm. the aerosol itself. Um, but there were some concerns, especially early in COVID, and those have been validated. These things actually might move through um, move through a more of a smaller aerosol transmission. And that's part of what our test was using using this gas, right? Obviously, gases fall, uh, are going to travel uh, further than um, particles, which is why in the first case that we did both tracer gas and tracer particles. Um, so usually when we're mimicking the particle, we're really trying to match up the, the type of particle um, and the particle generator. That's interesting stuff. I'm not a scientist. I'm not engineering minded at all. So for a person like me, it's interesting to hear. I don't always get it, but I understand it when you talk about it. <laughs> what um, what efforts do you undertake, Brian, to to verify that HVAC systems are are configured and are properly configured? And how does configuration enter into the equation? Yeah, important question, right? Like, I think the first case study that we talked about here. What they were worried about was an aerosol transmission of COVID nineteen and the HVAC system being a being a potential pathway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, their um, you know traditional um, uh, airborne infection isolation rooms they're exhausting one hundred percent of their air. That's mm -hmm. not what happens in uh, in other areas of the hospital. And so, essentially, the hospital had to do like most hospitals had to do is they had to utilize systems not based upon their design intent, right? So first you have to understand how they're configured and see whether or not it was possible. There's lots of ways that this was done in hospitals in that em emergencies that happened in, in you know, early to mid, to mid 2020. Um, and this, this was really important for us to understand what were they trying to achieve. So do you look at <clears throat> like when you're doing a, a um, you know, you're, 
tracer testing, do you look at the present state and then come with the results and then modify if necessary as you go forward? Is it is it almost two step process? Yep. In this first case study, it sure was. Was they were worried about basically um, air and dirty air in this case getting by a closed mixed air damper, right? And even uh-huh. when closed, dampers can leak. And so basically several of them were, were, were completely fine, but then several of the, um, the mixed air dampers actually leaked. And so they were able to make real-time changes to prevent that leakage and then verify that they were not, they were not having um, leakage around the mixed air damper. So assuring that, again, this is kind of in the pre-COVID world coming up to March, that they were, they were getting uh, quote unquote clean outdoor air when they thought that they were, they weren't getting uh, also recirculated air. Hmm. So what, so that's part of what your study concluded. Yes. Were, the, were there yep. other, were there other results that were either surprising or what else did you, what else did you find after your testing took place? You know, I think what surprised us in the hospital the most was how much leakage we actually had hmm. around certain closed dampers, right? Everyone knows that a, a damper might have a small amount of leakage, but there was a there was a couple of um, dampers that had an awful lot of leakage even when closed. We were able to address them reasonably easily, frankly, but um, that was, I think that was a surprise, right? Whether yeah. it be you know, whether it be the controls or whether it be the, the, the um, actuation of the damper was, it was surprising that we had um, a decent amount of, of, of leakage up to 5%, frankly, wow. even with what they thought was a, was a closed damper. And was, were those the, the, um, the controls and the accusation, was that the, were those the two main culprits that you found? You know, we, we, <laughs> the, we had a couple of issues that occurred right as they were getting ready for the surge, and we we used a bit more of a blunt tool. And, and essentially, what they did is that they they installed a hard barrier across the dampers <laughs> and decided okay. that they would figure out what was wrong later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but controls were an issue. I, I think just um, you know just the the the, um, the, the, the gaps around the, the leak around the dampers. But we we decided as we were getting close that we weren't going to try to figure out exactly what was going on, but just fix the problem, which which right. can be a good solution. Sometimes sometimes too. And they, they ultimately did go back and certainly understand what was going on there as well. But we were to validate that, that our, um, you know, that, that our duct tape method was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think in, you know, March and April, there was a lot of that going on, right? You just, you fix the problem and then you come back to it and kind of figure it out when you've got more information, more time, and the surge is a little bit less than what it was. I think a lot of people back then, you you did what you thought was best with not always complete knowledge. I'm not saying that in this case, because you did your study, so you knew what you were doing. But there was a lot of that. Agreed. The, um, you know, when you guys at EH&E back in January 2020, when you started your planning for it, did you envision... I don't think anybody could have, but what did you guys think would be like a worst case scenario? You know, as you, as you were thinking January, February, what did you think it was going to be? And, and not say this. It, yeah, okay. yeah you're not, not this, right? I think, I, I think, I think very few people did, right? right. I, think, I think not this. We, we were doing a lot of work in the healthcare space in, in that time frame, up going to, to early March. And you know, I think that there was a lot of concern about a surge, which of course happened happened here in the Northeast earlier and around the country later. But I think what what no one really appreciated is, you know, we're we're twenty months later, 
right? And there's yeah. we're, we're in a we're in a we're in a better spot, right? We continue to get in a better spot. Some questions about the variant, but you know this this thing I think changed the world for years, and I think. I think the way that folks were probably thinking about it in March is that it would be devastating for a few months, right? And this right. this thing really changed the world. I mean, you know, we they develop vaccines within you know fourteen, fifteen months, and so there's been some incredible science. We hospitals were so flexible and resilient to make these changes to treat their patients. So there's a lot of good news stories, but I think yeah, no, we we certainly did not understand the impact here in January, February, nor did our clients. I think, but it became obvious pretty quickly <laughs> for many right. of us. Right, um, right. Well, and if it's true, you know, if you think about it, that was what twenty months ago. Now that's amazing that it was that long ago. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think it, it, yeah, I think it taught all of us, right. Hospital engineers, um, infection control folks, consultants is, it is, we all knew how to pull an audible, but now we really know how to call an audible, <laughs> right. We know how to, yes. right? And, uh, so I think it was, you know, th- there were some good lessons learned out of this thing. Yeah. Have you guys had the opportunity yet um, to do a lessons learned? I mean, we're still in it and lessons learned are always really valuable. And you're bringing some of that to your clients, obviously, when they're calling. But like a formal lessons learned documentation, have you had an opportunity to do any of that yet? Or is it still too, not too new, but are you just still going too much to have that, you know, to take the time to do it? Yeah, we've done that over some of our uh, various um, client sectors. We did a lot of work, actually. With um, with with camps, overnight camps and day camps, um, huh. as well as as well as schools, and I think, you know, the you know most camps were 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 postponed in summer of 2020, but there were a couple that opened, and we were able to take some good information working with CDC and present some lessons learned. So I, I think helped summer camps open this summer, right? Um, and yeah. the same in the, in the school environment as well, right? I think that in the healthcare space, the pace the pace has been so. Um, uh, you know, it's been so fast. We, we, we've, um, we've participated in some exercises w- with our clients as well, certainly, but I think it's, um, it's, I think healthcare is still waiting for a little bit of a breathing room. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're probably right. So relative to that first case study that you presented, uh, at, at Ashy Brian, where you, the tracer gas testing and the HVA systems that they were properly configured. Was there anything else that came out of, of, of that particular study that you, you think is noteworthy or interesting or, you know, good for people to hear about? You know, I think it, it actually, I'm going to answer the second one, which is that I think it actually, it really set us up to do that second case study, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the study um, uh, with the outbreak at a, at a, at a different hospital. And I think it really gave a good perspective on how we would use tracer gas and tracer particles in a real world scenario for COVID. So I think that was the, maybe the other valuable part of it is we end up doing similar things for many hospital clients throughout COVID and getting involved in it early, right, allowed us to take that experience. Now, they were all very different. The outbreak study was actually quite a bit different, but I think the other value of us getting involved so early in COVID is we we're able to understand the dynamics of, 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 of airflow and uh, uh, in COVID transmission so we could up, use these other studies to support clients. So the second case study that, that Brian's alluding to there, and if, if you were at Brian's presentation, Brian, you and I talked about this at the end, when Brian was answering questions um, from the audience and everybody was really engaged, he was up on a stage and I was in that the front row. They had tables, but I was at the front row of the table and Brian was really into it. 
and I thought he was going to come off the stage and he didn't, his foot would go, <laughs> his foot would go right to the edge and he never made it over. And I don't even think he knew he was that close, but he was right there. And I, I was going to catch you if you came over you. So you were in good hands, but yeah, he was, uh, he was close to that edge. But the second case study, that's a little aside. The second case study Brian talked about, um, he demonstrated how tracer gas testing was undertaken to successfully in- investigate and identify the pathway of a COVID-19 outbreak in a hospital. So an actual outbreak. Can you tell us, Brian, what you guys did, how you did it, and what you found? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, it was a COVID outbreak on, at a hospital and they they had a hypothesis. And basically, they asked us as a design study to test that hypothesis, right? Which was that the first patient that seeded the outbreak, right? Once the outbreak happened, there were other channels in which it spread to staff, right? And patients, but that the first way that it was seeded had to do with a um, aerosol generating procedure that was done in a room that was not negative or slightly positive, And that we were seeing some seeding of infection to the nurse's station and potentially some, some nearby um, uh, patient care rooms. And so that's basically what we evaluated was we released these tracers under situations that were similar to the aerosol generating procedures. And then we measured, um, we measured that aerosol at a handful, actually at many locations throughout, throughout this particular patient care floor. And we were seeing, um, we found data that show that there was an awful lot of aerosol at two locations, a nurse's station, and then the very adjacent uh, patient care room. And this 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 um, followed the flow of infections that the hospital believe it happened. So we were able to tie down sort of what the kind of ground zero event here was. And we also ruled out some other things by showing we didn't find the aerosol in lots of other rooms. So we, we designed this study to really help demonstrate whether their hypothesis was correct. In fact, it was. The data we collected showed that the way they were thinking about this infection is is probable and, in fact, very likely the way it happened. It allowed them to make some changes um, and put some additional controls in, uh, in place to ensure this doesn't happen again. What was the distance from the room where they felt that the outbreak occurred from that room to the nurse's station and then to the adjacent room? What was the, what were the distances? We're probably talking about maybe 30 feet from the patient bed to the closest area of the nurse's station, a little bit closer to that patient care room because it was adjacent um, door to door. But then if you went, if you went sort of, um, if you went bed to bed, it's probably about that same 25, 30 feet or so. So it went, it went quite a ways. It went quite a ways further yeah. than further than the hospital and even us expected, frankly. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> not, yeah, not only further, but also more as well, because you know we didn't, we don't, and we still don't have a good sense about the dose and the dose response relationship here. Mm. But what we could do the study is an awful lot of aerosol got out, right? So maybe, maybe even more surprising than the distance, right, was the amount. The amount of aerosol that got out. Correct. Right. To these, to these locations that yep. were, you know, were pretty, pretty, you know, not, 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 not within that six feet, um, you know, not within <laughs> that, that six feet magic number. Right. right. Yeah, no, exactly. So that, that was, so that was surprising to you guys. It was, it was surprising. I mean, we, we did, you know, we, we set it up 
like this aerosol generating procedures, we use certain flow rates to try to mimic those procedures. So it was, this wasn't just an exhale breath of a patient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, 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 we tried to duplicate what was going on during the procedure and we did that. And I think it was surprising, um, especially the hospital of how much we actually measured in these other locations. Yeah. When you, um, you know, speaking of the aerosol and then mimicking the aerosol, and I'm sorry, I apologize for this is kind of a dumb question, but how closely, to what percentage can the mimic be close to the real? You know what I mean? Is it 100%? Are they exactly the same? Is Are they 95, 99% close? Does that question even make sense? I guess, how closely does the mimic match the actual aerosol? Oh, yeah, that's a good point here, right? I mean, not a hundred percent. We're not we're, we're using yeah, we're using a surrogate. We're we're basically trying to we're trying to test a pathway. Mm-hmm. And we're trying and we're trying to be sure the source is reasonable. Mm. Right. We very often use a particle tracer, but because and we actually use a particle later on in this one as well. But because they were using an aerosol's medication, we used a gas because an aerosol's oh. medication can act like a gas for a certain amount of time. And we use the same flow rate. So to the extent we can, we, we try to mimic that aerosol. And we're really trying to demonstrate a pathway. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to cook, <coughs> you know, you don't want to, you don't want to cook the book. So you have so much that it's going to get there, right? You're trying, <laughs> we're trying right. to make it as, as real in the world as possible. But, yeah. you know, these, these, um, I want to, I want to make one, um, you know, these aren't laboratory studies at all, right? We're, we're yeah. in a, the hospital where we're um right so we're you, you you could you could do more precise laboratory studies but the problem with the laboratory studies in the laboratory right so we're right. we're doing this in the real world and we're, we're we're getting as close as we can with reasonable assumptions but we're we we don't we, in these tracer gas studies we're, we're not we're not developing the exact physics of an aerosol we're, what we're doing is getting something that is quite close that would act the same way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how long does that testing process play how, how long does it take to do that just the actual physical test of it and uh yeah so the um like the that my second case study all the field work was done in an evening a very long evening by the way <laughs> <laughs> a very long email it, it might have been the it might have been the latest email i've sent in my career and i've sent some late emails I, I, what, what, what was, time what time was the last one sent the latest I, I think i think it was 2 a.m i, I wow. think it was at two in the morning um wow. and i still sent it from the hospital site I, think. So <laughs> I, I don't think i got home till 2 30 or 3 so it was uh wow. it was it was all done in the evening right we were doing one test on the real scenarios we had planned for it uh kind of all morning there so it was you know it was probably the uh, one of my longer days in my career it was like an 18 hour day but it was you know this this is not a the situation i was describing it's not like it's a two-week study right we're, yeah. we're going out and you know th- there are lots of ways to study these things in a laboratory we're, we're doing in real world conditions and trying to give the client real advice in the moment. Right. So right. Yeah, we, we did this all in an evening though. It was a long evening. <laughs> right. And that's, I mean, that's what you want and that's what you need. Right. I mean, you, you want it out in the real world. You don't want a laboratory. Right. Exactly. Right. This client, they were looking for information and advice to, to make some changes. And that's, that was, the, I mean, we do a lot of, um, uh, analysis that might require some uh, laboratory analysis, right? And that might be a, you know, depending on what we're talking about in, in say, bacteria or fungi, it might be a, a five to seven day turnaround. But we also do a lot of real time analysis to help our clients make decisions in, in the real time, which is really important, frankly. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I want to ask you in, in a second about, um, you know, the outcomes or, or what did the client do or how did the study um, change what, what they what they did or what did they implement? But first, 
just so you know, I'm speaking to Brian Connors. Brian is the managing principal consultant at Environmental Health and Engineering located in Newton, Mass. We're talking a lot about industrial hygienists. We're talking a lot about science. We're talking about COVID. So that's Brian's role. If you want to learn more about EH&E, please go to ehneinc.com. They're located up here in Newton, Mass. So Brian, what did uh, what was the outcome of that study? What what did the client put into effect based on the results? Yeah, so I, mean, I think first they were able to answer the question, how did this thing happen? Right? Mm-hmm. And then and then really important for them is how do we prevent it? And it was a combination of the two things I described. It was this aerosol generating procedure done within a non-negative pressure room. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, you know, it, they were able to make some changes in the way they do certain clinical procedures within within certain areas, right? And, you know, I think that that was, this was something that hospitals were doing around that time frame. It was, the CDC came out with recommendations around that, around that time frame, right? It was just, it was a lot of moving parts, but they were able to clearly see what could happen when these aerosol generating procedures are done in, in non-negative pressure rooms, right? And so we, we, um, you know, we, we, we were able to help them change. Not, I wouldn't say their clinical practice, frankly, but which areas they perform certain clinical procedures in, right? And um, take some additional precautions around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, you, you know, you said when you started on the second case study, when you, you know, when you were actually in the field that the, the client had, um, the client had a reasonable assumption that they knew where it came from. Just in general, how often do you go into an atmosphere and not even COVID related, but just in general, how often do you start a case and I'll use case. How long do you start a case where the client kind of has a theory or hypothesis versus you having to go in and the it's a blank slate? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's really two important issues here. It's the source and the pathway. Mm. And I think sources are reasonably understood for a lot of sources, mycobacterium, legionella, mold, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. often the source has some good background information from the client, but often the pathway, yeah. you know, I think in that in this in this example I gave, the client had a hypothesis on the pathway based on what they knew. And that's probably less common. I'd say less common do the clients have a really well-developed um, situation. So we're coming in, you know, often um, – to help help clients understand that pathway, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they have good ideas. Sometimes they have the ideas that we later learn might not be the right idea. But it's okay, it's, 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 right. it's an iterative process, right? And um, yeah. you know, and this, you know, there's 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 lots of times that we don't know exactly what we're looking at when we come in. We've done various infections around medical equipment, so I know HVAC systems and hmm. buildings, but we're often learning a lot when we come in, right? And what we're hopefully able to do is you know, apply the things that we learn to the, the case at hand. I think we do that very well, but there's, there's lots of times that we come in and there'd be something new, right? I looked at, um, I, I looked at NICUs, uh, um, right around this time frame pre COVID. I learned a lot about the, um, the incubators, frankly, for NICU babies, huh. looked at water, uh, heater cooler units in ORs. So there's, you know, we're learning a lot and that's, that is, though, we, we learn a lot from, from our clients, right? And that's what consultants do. We, what we're able to do is help the next client, hopefully with, with a similar issue. Mm. And you just mentioned medical equipment. Is there a piece, and you mentioned incubator? Is there a piece of medical equipment that that stands out for um, you know, in, in this regard? Yeah, the most problematic medical equipment, the one that I've been involved in, are these modular heater cooler units used in open heart surgery. Um, huh. 
there were uh, FDA alerts that came out with uh, mycobacterium um, infections uh, almost 10 years ago now with a certain type of heater cooler unit. But, but, but I think that, you know, we're learning more about waterborne pathogens all the time. And in these, um, the current FDA approved heater cooler units, they do have a water source w- w- within the OR and they're not mm. a completely closed loop system. So I think those have been more, maybe the more interesting ones that, that I've done as of late. It was an issue that we knew about with a certain design of heater cooler units about 10 years ago, but we're, we're, we've been seeing an uptick in those types of, of issues and assessments recently. <laughs> so it's going to be something, right? Yes, <laughs> there, I, will, yes. there will never not. Um, yeah, I, I learned an awful lot about open hot surgery where I knew nothing coming in. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to stay at a Holiday Inn either. Um, <laughs> what do you envision, you know, putting your, uh, well, actually, before I ask what you envision for the future here, Brian, relative to COVID, was there anything else that came out of that second case study that you found illuminating or surprising or you think is, is good for folks to know? You know, I think those were the major issues. I think it's it's really making sure that the right clinical procedures are, not, are done in the right area. Also, you know, Joint Commission has been so focused on negative and positive pressure for yeah. a good five, seven years now. and just shows you they were right. I think Joint Commission and CMS were right to be because, you know, we showed that this issue would not have been an issue. We tested it under different scenarios. Huh. It would not have been an issue in a negative pressure room, but it was in this slightly positive room. And so it, it shows you that getting your pressurization across your campus right is so, so important, just, just broadly speaking. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Because you are right, negative and positive is always an issue. Um, what do you envision, Brian, for the future of hospital slash healthcare, environmental health and engineering, and, and how and how how did COVID and how will COVID change it? You know, I think I think it's what we kind of talked about earlier. I think it's that resiliency. I think mm. it's a flexibility. Right, we need more resilient buildings from future pandemics from potential um, global warming, right? We need lots of flexibility. Like we we might not actually know what the next major disruption is going to be. And so we need to be a, ability to <laughs> have more flexible facilities, right? Like, you know, I think years ago used to have the ability to go what they call the switchable negative positive pressure. And they actually got rid of those within the code. They didn't want them to be switchable by clinicians. And there was good reason for that, frankly. But we maybe need that flexibility where, where a room could be positive pressure one day and negative the next, right? We yeah. ability to, to, to quickly transform um, clinical units. And I know FGI is looking at all that now. And there's, you know, there's expert committees from ASHRAE 170 looking at these types of issues. But it will be our ability to call an audible. We might not actually <laughs> know what the next issue is that keeps us up at night. Yeah. That's the scary thing. <laughs> it's out there. You just don't know where it, what it is yet. Um, for somebody who's who's interested in this field, I mean, uh, uh, what would you suggest? How do how would you know your your route was kind of um, you know as you said not planned? How would one go about either learning more about this? potential career. And I guess I'm talking about industrial, you know, being an industrial scientist, how would one go about it? Or, or what might you suggest if somebody hears this and says, this is interesting, I'd like maybe my child to look at this, or maybe I'd like to look at this potential career path. Is there some career advice you could give relative to this field and how to, you know, potentially work in it or, you know, how it is as a career path for folks? Yeah. I mean, I think even more broadly for a moment, I mean, healthcare is such an amazing place to work. And frankly, mm. the healthcare support services areas, facility directors, all group infection control, EHS in there, such an interesting place to be. And I think, 
I think getting in that space would be a great career move that there's lots of ways to do that through places like ASHI or even APEC on the infection control side. In terms of the real specific forensic side, right? Like I think, I think you'd want to have, um, you know, you'd like, you'd want to like to problem solve. Also, I think what we do need is what we described earlier is more of those interpreters, right? You don't need to have a physics degree hmm. maybe to be the person talking to hospital clients about the person with a physics degree, right? You, you need the yeah. ability to understand information for sure. Right? You can't just be a, a copy and paste, but take information, <laughs> understand what's important, and uh, I'll be able to communicate that to the client. So I think there's lots of ways to do that. And I think you know healthcare is an amazing space to be in, and I encourage folks to, to learn more about healthcare support services, right, through, through ASHI and even APAC or those types of organizations. Yeah, it's, it's, certainly, a, um, it's certainly a time with wide open possibilities. Agreed. Is there anything, Brian, and, and um, you know, final question for Brian Connors from Environmental Health and Engineering, anything, and me from a non-scientist background, is there anything I didn't ask about, anything we didn't cover that is... Um, you know, that folks should know either relative to what you do or COVID or, or something that we just didn't get to that you think is worthwhile for people to, to know or understand? No, I mean, I think these can be fun stories to tell. I, mm. I do. I enjoy, I enjoy telling the story. I think there's lots of good lessons learned here, right? I think the, the, the case study format, it's a really interesting one to me. I, I think it, yeah. um, it's one that I enjoy. I, I've, um, in, in my in my uh, career here, I've, I've sort of enjoyed being a storyteller. Now, you want to make sure the story's the right one, right? You know, I don't mean make up the story. <laughs> people can learn a lot from these things. That's, that's what I really yeah. enjoy about ASHI and these conferences, right? It's not the thou shalt, but hey, we tried this and this happened, right? I think right. That, that, that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, and I mean, as I said, it really um, it really drew people in. I think people like those real world. You, you talked about doing things in a lab versus doing things out in the real world. I think people appreciate the real world application of things. Agreed. Yeah. That's, that's where I am too. Right. It's, I mean, the lab's an important side, certainly, but in terms of understanding how it impacts, impacts my hospital, I think the real world scenarios are so important. Absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of high reliability. I really appreciate your time. Um, It went pretty quickly. I, I enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed it as well. Excellent. So that was Brian Connors from Environmental Health and Engineering, Newton, Massachusetts. Brian's the Managing Principal Consultant. Brian, I thank you. I thank the listeners for listening to High Reliability, and we will be back with a future episode. Have a great day, and thanks again for listening.